Well, if you will, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Our two main texts this morning will be Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And then put your finger a few pages later to chapter 10. Our our main points will fall out of chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Well, my name is Trent Hunter. I'm the pastoral assistant here at Desert Springs Church. It's good to be with you. We've been listening through the New Testament together throughout the summer for 90 days. And with the book of Hebrews... And the end of August, we are rounding the last corner. If you'd like to pick up with us now or start over the listening plan once we're done, you're welcome to do that. There's information on the church's website and out in the foyer. Well, the young Charles Spurgeon recalled his first exposure to the book of Hebrews this way. I have a very lively or rather deadly recollection of a certain series of discourses on the Hebrews which made a deep impression on my mind of the most undesirable kind. I wished frequently that the Hebrews had kept the epistle to themselves, for it sadly bored a Gentile lad. So this morning we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, but that wasn't his opinion for long. He eventually was glad, of course, they didn't keep it to themselves. And I pray and hope today that we would be awfully glad the, the Hebrews didn't keep it to themselves and that God didn't keep it to himself as well. The book has many images foreign to our daily experience, many names of things and places and people foreign to our daily experience, but those ideas and themes are immediately relevant. They address the deepest human problem, the fear of death. So let's read our two texts this morning. We'll start with chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where the author writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now chapter 10 Verses 19 through 25. There we read. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the renewed, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, before we unpack this, let's go to our Father in prayer through our great high priest. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this letter to the Hebrews. We thank you for the glorious and great picture of your son that we find there. Through whom we can draw near to you. I pray, Father, this morning that we would heed the command of this book and hold fast our confession, the confession of our hope, and to do so without wavering. And to do so because you who promised is faithful. We thank you for this word. We thank you for Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. We all, we all have an inborn desire to draw near to things we perceive to be great. Right now, my nine-month-old daughter perceives keys to be great. They are number one on her list, indicated by what happens when you take them away. Good drummers. In high school, I was obsessed if I could just get closer, if I could just draw near. That's why I sit in the front row generally here at DSC, so I can be as close as I can to the drums. A ball game or a concert, who doesn't want a front row seat to a ball game or a concert? The nearer the better. Someone recently showed me a picture of their great view at a U2 concert in Denver. It was the most ridiculous thing I had ever seen. They were very, very far away, and you couldn't see the band, just some orange spot in the middle of a giant stadium. I wouldn't want to be that far away, but it was closer than outside the stadium for them, and I like you too, but they had to be there, and they were there, even at a distance. 
Well, we want to be near greatness, near to glory. And of course, it's not bad to draw near to keys or drum or drums or ball games or bands. But of course, those are not the things we were made by God to ultimately be made to be near. The Bible says that we were made to be near God, but that after sin entered the world, that's only possible on his terms. And those terms are dictated by the nature of our separation, his holiness, and our utter pollution and guilt. And we have a spiritual inability to fix this problem. So what we read in 10 verses 19 through 22 is astounding and really, really good news. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. My friends, this is marvelous. In a sentence, drawing near to God is the enjoyment of access, uninhibited access to God. We've been brought near to God through Christ, the Bible says. We're near to him through Christ. But this book also continually commands us to draw near to God in a life of close communion with him. We think of a married couple that doesn't talk or interact or even avoids each other. It shouldn't be that way. Certainly not with our relationship with God. We're to talk, to relate, to experience, to know and commune with him, to enjoy the access that was purchased for us by the blood of Christ. And listen to the kind of access we have. We're commanded to draw near with confidence, verse 19. And in verse 22, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Does it get any better than that? Can you get any nearer to God than that? We can actually go into the holy places. And this is possible for sinners. How? He says, by the blood of Jesus. Maybe you would memorize chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. This is great stuff. The story of the Bible and the heart of this letter are clearly One and the same. God draws people near to himself through Christ. He draws people near to himself through Christ. Well, We know a few things about the original readers of this letter. We know they were converted to Christianity from Judaism. The book's full of Old Testament references. uh, And their specific temptation is to fall back into Old Testament ways of approaching God before Christ came. We know their new faith led to persecution, and they were faithful through it, which is a good sign for them. We read marvelous report of their steadfastness in years past. Chapter 10, verses 32 and following. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We know they loved one another and do in God's name. Chapter 6, verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his, for his name in serving the saints as you still do. These are signs that they have indeed drawn near to God in Christ. But while this was true generally of the readers, and this is their story, um, there are some among them, and a tendency in the group, some new ideas that maybe reverting back to the old ways is the way to go. A lot less controversial than allegiance to a recently condemned and crucified criminal. What are we to make of the phenomena of those who leave the faith, who show fervent allegiance to Christ during one season of their life and run from him just as hard? During another. Well, in chapter 5, he says, These folks have stopped growing. You have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And this starts one of six warnings against unbelief. He is warning them sternly against falling away from the living God. Even as early as chapter 2, verses 1, he says, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. They're not paying attention to what they've heard, the gospel. They're paying attention to their circumstances. And whichever we're paying more attention to, 
will likely and almost inevitably interpret the other. And the picture of drifting is helpful. It's like a ship that's moved off course just a bit. That trajectory in time will mean it lands at a very different place. And it was almost undiscernible to the people on the ship, and the captain, and those watching the ship early on. But as time progresses, it becomes clear that this is not going in the same place. And so in chapter 10, verses 23, which is part of our main text this morning, we read, hold fast the confession without wavering. And it gives us a good reason to do so. He who promised is faithful. This call to hold fast, said in various ways, is the central burden of the book. It's a call to persevere on our way to a better country, a heavenly one, he says. Pay closer attention. Hold fast your confession without wavering. Let us run the race, run with endurance the race set before us, as he says famously in chapter 12. Well, does this book sound like a sermon? Does it sound like we're reading and preaching from a sermon this morning, not just a letter? Well, it is. Whoever the writer is, and he doesn't state his name, this is kind of a sermonic letter. He's preaching to them, and he's a very good preacher. God used him to preach a sermon recorded here in the Bible. Perhaps the long, actually the longest sermon we have recorded in the Bible. The original readers were tempted to try and draw near to God by some means other than Christ. Old Testament and insufficient ways of drawing near to God. Christ is the only way to draw near to God. And we all have our old ways of thinking we can be right with God. And so the warnings and the exhortations in this letter are for us, for sure. This call to persevere, to hold fast, is the central burden of the sermon written in our Bibles. And so it's the central burden of this sermon this morning. If God draws people near to himself through Christ, then we must hold fast to Christ. And that is the first point. And it's also where we'll spend most of our time. In verse 23, we're told, hold fast our confession. It's not talking about a formal confession, but the truth about Jesus that he's been explaining throughout the whole book, his person, his work, which he's written about. To confess Christ is to trust him, to swear allegiance to him. In other words, to hold fast to him. We can't draw near if we don't. We must get him right. So who is he? The author of this sermon, the writer of the preacher of this sermon, spends a lot of time explaining who Christ is so we get him right. And even before he's three verses in, He's pretty much covered the bases in seed form. It's a good sermon. He knows what he's trying to say. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. In verses 1 through 2, I'll be in and out a number of different verses. You might just camp out and meditate on this package of scripture throughout this section. Verses 1 through 2, he says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, Christ's prophetic work is not the main theme, even really a big theme in the book of Hebrews, but it's right here in the first verses, and it's assumed throughout. We are dependent creatures, aren't we? Dependent for everything we know. We don't often think about this until we get leave the house and maybe go to college, start asking the question, well, why do I believe that? Why do I think that? Well, my parents taught me. Well, that's what parents are for. But it's a good question. How do I know what I know? Can I know things? College kids have a kind of a crisis with this question often. And they come out all over the place. Some would say we, can't, we can only know through our senses and that's it. The only things I can touch, see, and feel and hear. Others say we can know by doubting everything until there's just me doubting and then I know I'm me and I'll work from there. Others would say we can't really know anything and people who think they know things are just deceiving themselves, arrogant be it right and wrong, the meaning in life, or especially spiritual matters. This is a popular one today. According to the Bible, we must concede our finitude. We have no problem saying we can't know everything perfectly, or thoroughly, or certainly. But our inability to know things certainly and perfectly. In fact, we've also got a moral limitation, the Bible says. Even if we did have perfect access to all kinds of the world's marvelous information through our senses, we would deny it all. We deny the truth that it points to. God himself, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We have a moral problem. But Christians also recognize from the Bible that even though we're finite and fallen and corrupt and biased, we can know things. God made a knowable world and he made us as knowing creatures. More to the point, God made us to know him and he has communicated to us in order that we would know him. 
He's done so in many ways over the years. He certainly did so through his prophets. He'd speak to men and they would speak the word to his people. And that's written down in our Old Testament scriptures. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus does not just bring a revelation from God or a message from God or a word from God. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the message of God. He is the word of God. He's God's great prophet because, if you will, he's God's very voice. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the imprint, exact imprint of his nature, it says in verse 3. In Christ, God has closed an infinite communication gap. We could not know him unless he came to us. And this New Testament we have here is this great prophet's written word. He appointed apostles as the foundation of the church and sent his spirit and inspired them to write these words that testify to him so we can know him. And Peter says, when here we have something more sure, the prophetic word, more sure than seeing Jesus in person even, in his glory. Being a Christian means trusting that the Jesus that lived is the beginning of our knowledge about how the world really is, we really are, and God really is. And let me be clear, as clear as these verses are, Jesus is not another religious leader. You cannot believe the Bible and believe that. He is not another of God's prophets. Muhammad and Joseph Smith, no author for that matter, is bringing God's word, revealing God to us. Holding fast to Christ means confessing him as our great prophet. He promised to come, and he did. Moses, God's prophet, said a greater prophet would come, and this is the one. And because he's faithful, we can hold fast without wavering because he who promised is faithful. So we must confess him as our great prophet to hold fast to Christ. But also, holding fast to Christ means confessing him as our great priest. And if we can think of this book like caving, at the front of the cave you can understand the gospel, right? A child can profess the gospel and understand it, but there are deep caverns. We went through one, who Christ is, and we're going to dig deeper into who Christ is as a great priest. So much of our time under this point, which is much of the sermon, will be spent on great, his high priestly work. Because that's how this sermon is spent. Five chapters, verses, chapters 5 through 10, are all on Christ's priestly work in this sermon in our book. And then references to his priests that are sprinkled through all, throughout the whole book. So we'll camp out on it. In verses 1 through 3, we have a flicker of where he's going. He says, After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This little line references the primary subject matter of his sermon. And what on earth, though, is a priest? You hear anyone just talking about priests in your daily life, on TV, in the news? Jesus' role as a prophet had to do with the problem of knowing. This has to do with the problem of our guilt. People call it different things. In the case of the Bible, a priest is to mediate. It's a go-between. For priests between God and sinners, a priest does something with the guilt, with sin. Hebrews 5.1 provides a nice summary of the priest's role. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Chosen from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Christ's priestly work is the center of his, uh, this book, and it's unpacked nowhere else as thoroughly in the whole Bible. Now, the idea of guilt isn't so popular. There are all kinds of complicated ways of getting ourselves out from off the hook here. Yes, we're complicated. Yes, we're dynamic creatures affected by our environment and our upbringing. We react to things, and we're victims in many small and big ways in a fallen world. But we are nonetheless guilty. Because we're a part of the problem that is sin and evil in the world. It's in us too. The disease is in us. To address this, we imagine that the world we live in is one where among, we're among the exceptional moral few. That's the one way we solve it in our minds. Or we imagine a religious system inside which we can succeed and climb out of our trouble and feel good about ourselves and right in the end. But Greg Gilbert is right. Nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. And that's all of us. But the Bible has it both ways. God both condemns sin all the way, and God saves all the way. 
John Stott gets to the heart of this Bible, the whole Bible's tension. How can God express his holiness without consuming us and his love without condoning our sins? How can God satisfy his holy love and how can he save us and satisfy himself simultaneously? Christianity's answer? In order to satisfy himself, he sacrificed, indeed substituted himself for us. As we read in verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Sins that bring a lifelong slavery to fear of death, he says. Sins that bring a fearful expectation of judgment, he says. In other words, Jesus is our great priest. So what's so great about this great priest? What's unique about him? It's an important question, the uniqueness of Jesus. What's great about his great priesthood? First, he has a greater priesthood. And this is the first of three points we'll make showing how Christ's priest, Christ is a great priest. What's so great about him? And as he has a greater priesthood, he's from the order of Melchizedek, obviously. Right? Melchizedek. He writes Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. We want one of those. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Priestly work where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, don't bust this one out in your next gospel-sharing conversation. Let me ask you a question. Would you like to know the one who is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Yes! Uh, And if you don't exactly track with me here, that's okay. Oh, but I hope it whets your appetite for the depths and the breadths of God's word. If we're going to have a go-between, here's the point. It needs to be a priest that God will accept. And if God has appointed a priestly order, then you want a priest from that order. And God did appoint a priestly order, though, right? I mean, the whole Testament's full of priestly stuff. God called Moses, gave him all kinds of instructions for how his people were to be ordered in relationship with him. He appointed one whole tribe to be a priestly tribe. The tribe of Levi was that tribe, remember? They were given a sacrificial system to deal with sin, many lambs dying in their place, given a temple where the priests worked. God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, unapproachable, but once a year through many requirements. But the system didn't really take care of death. The priests all died, and they died because they were sinners, just like the people they represented. Now, if you want a priesthood that fixes the problem of death, and really fixes the problem of sin, and your fearful expectation of judgment, this is a problem in the Levitical priesthood. Plus, God's promised Messiah was going to come from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. But that's actually no problem. We might not have caught it, but the original readers who knew their Old Testament should have. God promised a Messiah was going to come from the order of Melchizedek, an acceptable go-between in Psalm 110. And the author of Hebrews cites God speaking about David's future son, king from the line of the tribe of Judah. This way, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who is that? Well, the name is mentioned 10 times in the Bible total. Eight of those times are in the book of Hebrews. One of the times is Psalm 110. That leaves one more. Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, there's a seemingly unimportant story about Abraham meeting a guy named Melchizedek, a local king. He's a king priest. They have a nice little meeting. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Abraham pays him a tithe. They move on. You don't really hear about him. Actually, you don't hear about him again until Psalm 110. But both of those little observations signal that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Abraham, the one to whom God called out and gave promises. But then he's gone until Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews has been thinking long and hard about this meeting and about God's promise to David. Jesus is from a better priesthood. He's from the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is like us in every way, yet without sin, so he doesn't ultimately die like the Levites did. He lives forever, so his priesthood goes on forever. It never needs to be replaced. He never needs to be replaced. He's interceding for us right now. The point is, Jesus is the right kind of priest. He has a greater priesthood. And as one with a greater priesthood and a greater priest, he has a greater sacrifice. Bullet number two. He offers up a human sacrifice in the place of humans. Now, that's better than bulls and goats, isn't it? But this wasn't any human. It was himself. He called us brothers. He was totally human. He was tempted like us in every way but without sin. 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, he says. Now, that's really human stuff Jesus is doing. He is all human. Yes, the radiance of God's glory, but he's all human. And where did he take his human sacrifice? Well, let's read in Hebrews 9, 11 and following. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And now in verse 24 and following, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year by the blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He went on our behalf where we could not go to offer a sacrifice that we could not offer. So what was the point of all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament? Could we have passed on the book of Leviticus? Was it just a joke? God made something that didn't work to keep us busy? Wanted to write a nice long book? No, he was preparing us to trust Christ and to trust Christ alone. And we can call these things promise patterns. It's a key to understanding the relationship of Old Testament people and events, some commands and places in the Old Testament to the New Testament fulfillment. Albuquerque has a lot going for it. Now, in some parts of the world, they have what are called roller coasters. Albuquerque is not one of those parts of the world. It's kind of of one of those parts of the world. You have to be able to see it from a few blocks away. A few years ago, a friend and, a friend and I from work got, our, got it in our head somehow to take our wives, take a day off work, drive through the night to Sandusky, Ohio. You might have heard of Sandusky, Ohio. For one, Cedar Point is in Sandusky, Ohio. It has 17 roller coasters, three of which are the world's largest. We had a great idea. In the weeks before our trip, we were pumping each other up with YouTube videos. We'd email these back and forth. You've got little rider cams. They stick them on there. They hold them while they're on the thing. And you can watch the whole roller coaster. You can ride the thing. It's phenomenal. We were excited. They were fantastic. How lame would it have been for us to get there on the ground underneath these coasters and to get out our phones to watch the videos of the rides towering above our heads and that we were riding in real life. I must confess, I actually did it. I got out my phone to see if it was the same. Put that sucker away, you idiot. You're here. What's wrong with the old ways? They're shadows and Christ is substance. They're promise, Christ is fulfillment. They're picture, Christ is reality. The priests teach us our need for a mediator and make us hungry for a perfect one. The sacrifices teach us our need for a substitute to die in our place and make us hungry for one that actually can, finally. The temple with its holy of holies and its thick veil separating us from God teaches us that God is holy. We cannot go near him and makes us hungry for somebody who can go in and take us with. The substance is here. Reality is here. Draw near to Christ and hold fast to him. If you return to the shadows, to the pictures, you deny you ever knew the real thing. Now, some of this might seem kind of irrelevant. Few among us are struggling with exactly the struggle of reverting to Old Testament practices, certainly in the ways that these first century readers were. But in the way that we read our Old Testament, we often suffer a very low view of Christ. We read the Old Testament as a rule book, lifting up commands and just dropping us dropping them on us without thinking about their relationship to Christ. We see it as a trivia book. We can talk at length about obscure details tucked away in the Old Testament no one thinks about but us. Or we see it as a book of God stories. Or maybe we're really confused and see it as the wrath side of the Bible as if the whole thing wasn't one big promise of grace leading us to Christ and Christ alone. So we have promise patterns. They're explicit 
they're not explicit one-liner prophecies. They're patterns woven into the story to lead us forward as we follow them to one that fulfills them, one that really does work, much like a video of a roller coaster. It tells us something about a roller coaster, but it's not the real thing. God gave us promise patterns in the Old Testament. But he also gave us explicit promises. And as our great priest, Christ has a greater priesthood, a greater sacrifice, and also greater promises. Bullet point number three. Let's just let the text speak for itself. In Hebrews chapter 8, 6 through 13, we read this. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What are those promises? He goes to Jeremiah 31. Probably, I don't know, maybe the most important passage in the Old Testament. Hebrews 8, 8 and following. Quoting Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, now we have commentary by the author of Hebrews. He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. Let me summarize all that. He specifically promises that those in the new covenant will have a law in their heart, not stone. They'll be changed from the inside. Ezekiel talks about the Spirit coming. He specifically promises that all those in the new covenant will have full forgiveness. None of this repeated sacrifice stuff by priests that sin themselves. We all have no guilt. Conscience is clean. Full access to God. And he also specifically promises that all those in his new covenant will know God. It's effective. It really works. And this is part of the reason we have a thing like church membership or a church covenant. And as much as we can, we want to to acknowledge ourselves as a group of people who are actually in the new covenant and for there to be no confusion. We want to reflect the kind of community we really are. Well, since Jesus was not only revealed God as, his great, as the great prophet, he came as a great priest. And because he did, we can have it both ways. A God who condemns evil all the way and a God who saves all the way because he took the punishment for our evil on himself. Jesus, he says, is the propitiation for our sins. If you are here and you are not a Christian, you are suffering under a weight of guilt. It may be that you've hardened your heart against it. It may be that you've talked yourself out of thinking you've got it, but you've got it. And to you, I say, and God says through his word, receive the full forgiveness of sins. Repent of your old ways of approaching God. Come to him through his priest. Jesus, and if you're a Christian, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we're to look and see him there who made an end of all our sin. Because the sinless Savior died, our sinful souls can be counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon you and to pardon me. Christianity is not essentially a matter of committing ourselves to Christ. Committing to Christ. Although we do commit our lives to his rule and his service. But at heart, Christianity entails a commitment of our lives to his protection, his safety, and his pardon. And when we do, we can't help but serve him and be committed to him. Holding fast to Christ means confessing him as our great priest. He promised a great priest with a greater priesthood, a greater sacrifice, and greater promises. And he provided that priest for us. So we can hold fast without wavering because he who promised is faithful. Holding fast our confession, holding fast to Christ, also means confessing him as our great king. Our great king. 
In verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was after making purification for sins. Ryan's right. It was through a cross that he demonstrated his authority. It's through a cross that he defeated the devil, the one who has power over death. And it's through a cross that he entered into his glory. We enthroned him on a cross. God enthrones him at his right hand. Christ's role of prophet addresses the question of how we can know. We need revelation. He brings it in force. His role as a priest addresses the problem of guilt. We're all trying to avoid it, trying to solve that problem. Every religion is doing that. Even the people who claim there's no such thing, they have their own reasons why they're okay. He takes it on himself, nails it to a cross. His role as king addresses the problem of authority. It's built into the structure of the world. There's not an organized group of people in the world without a boss somewhere. Where's the boss of the world? This place is bananas. It's crazy down here. Where's the boss? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and one thing he'll make all things, one time, one day he'll make all things right. Seated there on his throne. What kind of throne is it? Well, we get that answer, and what is a flurry of quotations in the first chapter of Hebrews? If you read it, you thought, oh my gosh, to chase all those down would be insane. It'll take some time. I encourage you to do it. Look at the original context, but don't miss this one right here. This is where they all come from, most of them. It's a promise God made to David about his future son, Jesus. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and following. For when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you and raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. The first chapter of Hebrews says Jesus is God's son. His throne is forever. He's on that throne. It'll never end. We're his people. We're his subjects. Holding fast to Christ means confessing him as our great king. He promised a great king would come. When he said this to David, that king has come. So we can hold fast without wavering because he who promised is faithful. So what's wrong with the old ways? They're old. They don't work. The new and better way, Jesus has come. He's the way, the truth, and the life, the prophet, the priest, and the king. The better we understand the Old Testament as an arrow pointing to Christ, the better we understand Christ and the more strength we have to hold fast to him. And what's really at stake in holding fast to Christ? Can we take him or leave him? We must pay much closer attention, we read in Hebrews 2, 1 through 3, to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape, he says, if we turn away, if we don't hold fast, if we don't pay attention, and if we drift? How shall we escape his judgment? It's shocking, but it's not news. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 33, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. No, I say deny him finally. Whoever denies him finally will be finally judged because Peter denied Christ but repented, showing he was a true disciple. Judas, on the other hand, not so. Remember what John says in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. That's just to make sure I'm clear. You can't lose your salvation. But hear this warning. If you fail to hold fast and you drift, you will land at a different place. You will show that you never had it. If God draws people near to himself through Christ, then we must hold fast to Christ. And if he draws people near to himself through Christ, we must hold fast to Christ and do it together. That's the second point. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. It doesn't get more practical than this, does it? It's as practical as us showing up this morning. God has so designed the Christian life that our holding fast requires the community of faith. We're told to stir one another up to love and good works, to not neglect meeting together, to encourage one another. Hearing this, I I can't help but think of a parallel between team sports. I'm a pretty lightweight guy. You'd think I could pull myself around town on a bike quite quickly. 
But you also need legs to do that. I ride with some guys on Saturday mornings, and it's apparent that I need stronger legs. Yesterday, one of the guys, when we pulled into DSC, and I said, trying to think your legs are getting stronger. He meant that as an encouragement. And I took it. It was encouraging. He said that after I pulled in last again. Uh, but he's watching. He's encouraging. He's spurring me on. He doesn't want to see me give up. He wants to see me show up again. And frankly, I want to show up again. And it felt good. I can't tell, but apparently my legs are getting bigger. <laughs> and it stirred me up to more biking. You can only get it and give it when you meet together, this kind of encouragement, this kind of stirring. Now, this is really kind of a preaching to the choir because I'm talking to you all who are here, but let me address a few things. Obviously, this rules out a kind of Lone Ranger Christianity, me and the TV preacher, me and the Bible, drifting from the comfort of my own home. But maybe you're cool with meeting with Christians just over coffee and talking to them at work, but who needs institutions, organized religion? Isn't that all just about power anyways? few verses on leaders rule out anything like that. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word to God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. We all need someone watching over our souls. That takes humility. We need it, spiritual leaders. But what's really at stake in holding fast together? Can we hold fast on our own? Our answer is in chapter 3, verses 12 and following. Listen carefully. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Make this a theme verse for your community group. We're to take care to exhort one another. How often? Every day we're to exhort one another. And what's at stake? An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. A few more clarifications on these warning passages. Six of them again. These are warnings against the deceitfulness of sin, but the judgment is for those who fall away, ultimately denying Christ. These warnings do threaten judgment for all those who fall away from the living God, who say with their abandonment of him or their words, I deny you, and persist in this denial as if they never knew him. And if they do that, it's true. They never knew him. These warnings do not threaten judgment for the person who is struggling with sin, who is actually struggling with sin. So if you're struggling with sin and you know the depth of your depravity, I pray you do, they crush you, if they crush you with the fear that maybe you have fallen away, well, that you want to honor God is no small sign that he's working his grace in you. And it's a sign that you belong to him. But your continued struggle is a sign that you really do belong to him. Those who have fallen away either feel nothing or they feel contempt for Christ. I was recently on a camping trip with some friends from high school, and one of them was at every church event. Uh, young out with Christian kids, if you will. I was a new believer in high school, and this is one of the guys I ran with. He hates Christians now. He speaks of Christ with vitriol. He was never a Christian. And it's important for his sake and ours just to acknowledge that so we can address him as an unbeliever, pray for him, Preach the gospel to him. And at the same time, these, function, these warnings do function to lead you through the narrow gate Jesus spoke about. Imagine, you can imagine a group, of hike, a group hiking together along a narrow cliff as you come to a dangerous pass. The guide yells out to point out a dangerous rock, an unstable rock. Your fellow hikers yell as well to point out the danger. If you have ears to hear this and eyes to see that rock, and you like living, you won't step on the rock. But if you don't have ears to hear this, or eyes to see it, and you actually think that life is in the thrill of the fall, someone told you that. Not from church, but someone told you there's a thrill in that fall. Then you may step on it and you'll fall to your death. We need these warnings in Hebrews on this page, and we need to hear them in each other's voices. Have you ever said, I think you're deceived. If you stay on this course, you'll fall away from the living God. That's okay to say. There it is. 
on the authority of God's word. Someone's buying in the deceitfulness of sin and continuing to buy in the, to the deceitfulness of sin that leads them to fall away from the living God, an evil, unbelieving heart. Take care, brothers, that none of you has that. Stay on the path and help others stay on the path. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Warnings are a part of how he gets that done. But don't let these clarifications take away from the force of the thing. If you're not sure if you're really struggling with sin or not, you're just sinning and frankly, you don't want to stop. You kind of believe that this is where it's at. You can't have no assurance that you belong to God, but repent and you can. Because if you actually repent, it's a sign that God is at work. Hold fast your confession. Holding fast our confession in Christ is a community project. Well, for to draw near to God, we must hold fast to Christ, hold fast to him together, and hold fast, point three, until the day. Remember Hebrews 10, verses 24 and following says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 3, 14, For we have come to share in Christ if we have come to share in Christ, if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What's true now bears itself out. That day, he speaks of, is when Christ returns or you pass through death to meet him, the end of this present life. And until that day, there are a couple things we can do. We can remember where we already are. Remember where we already are. Hebrews 12, the author compares the Old Testament access to God to new covenant access to God. Sinai and Zion, he compares. The mountain and God's city. Hebrews 12, and 18, verse 18 and following. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to them, for they could not endure what was given. If even a beast touches this mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. They're excited you're there, you're welcome. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You belong there. And to God, the judge of all, because he's judged Christ in our place. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, you have drawn near to God through Christ. You have been delivered from the fear of death and judgment. Remember where you are. And look where you're going. Look where you're going. This is what so many have done with great success. Think of the example of Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with them of the same promise. For he was looking forward to this city that has foundations whose designer and builder was God. That's some nice commentary on the book of Genesis. Think about Moses. Hebrews 11, 24 and following. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, that's a bad deal, being mistreated or fleeting pleasures. They're fleeting, but they're still pleasures. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And of course, we can think of our example, Jesus. Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And that's a good word for those who are under the threat of persecution. And it's certainly a good word for any of us who are tempted just to leave the faith just because. 
And it confirms what Hebrews 11.6 says. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And he gets glory when we do that because it means we're trusting his faithfulness to actually do good on his promise to reward us. So until the day, remember where we're at, look where we're going, and look like we know where we're going. There's some really practical stuff in the book of Hebrews at the back. Holding fast is something that takes place inside us. It's a matter of the mind and heart. But here's what it looks like on the outside. Verses 13, 1 and following. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Why? For, ha- for he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And this, my friends, is where we see the convergence of our view of Christ, doctrine, theology, chapters 5 through 10, and the details of our lives. So what, my friends, is your comfort in life and death? That is the most important question. It's the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's the one the Bible asks of us. It's the one this book is asking of us. And here's the good answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by the Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the high priestly work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He defeated the devil through that work. He is seated now at your right hand. He revealed God to us. We thank you for doing what we could not, for providing a a sacrifice that satisfies yourself and honestly and thoroughly addresses our evil. We can be honest and say, we're as bad as the Bible says. But we have hope because you stood in our place and took our punishment. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his blood. And I pray that each of us here would hold fast our confession in him. That we would do it together and that we would do it until the day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.